podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Uh, and firstly, congratulations to Judd Trump, who's won the Turkish Masters. And what do we say when Judd Trump wins a tournament? Come on, baby! Yeah! That's what we say. Uh, <laughs> a terrific uh, display, um, twofold really for me. Firstly, how he got to the final. And secondly, how he played in the final. Obviously, he'd lost at the Welsh Open, had every right to be disappointed by that, had every right to be sort of mentally tired, had to pick himself up immediately, got on the plane, was playing the next day, had to play seven matches in six days. In some ways, to me, he won the tournament on the Friday. On Friday, he had to play two matches. He beat Zhou Yulong 5-4 in what was a right old scrap. And then he had an hour off and had to go and play Ali Carter, one of the most toughest competitors on the tour. Um one of the toughest competitors on the tour, to be grammatically correct, um, and beat him 5-3. And I was surprised that he beat him. I thought Carter would win that because I just thought Trump can't keep going to the well. Turned out I was wrong. He could. He showed tremendous resilience just to reach the final. First session was close. And then in the evening, he played his best snooker of the season. And it was um, really terrific. Uh, Obviously, the maximum was a magical uh, frame. Wonderful for the tournament, you know, first year in Turkey, in Antalya, for the people there to see that. Um, and great to see Judd Trump back in form, uh, because it's always, uh, for me and so many fans of snooker, just great to watch. If you like watching snooker play really well, then you enjoy watching him play. So uh, congratulations uh, to him. And uh, it was a successful week, I think, for the sport. Obviously a new territory. One thing that I think it is worth saying is Trump winning... Obviously, the sort of natural order seems to be restored for now after all the shot winners. But in a way, it's paper, papering over the cracks because you got to the last 16, there are only three top 16 players there. There was him, Sean Murphy, and John Higgins, and Higgins lost in that round. Three didn't go, but even so, um, a lot of the, the big names did depart. So there's still a sense, and obviously Matt Selk got to the final, there's still a sense that it's a very unpredictable season. And I think that's a good thing. Um, I mean, you're not quite sure what's going to happen next. But the latest plot twist is that Judd Trump has uh, has returned to form. And that's, uh, as I say, for a lot of snooker fans, that's uh, great. One more time, I think, Judd. Come on, baby! Yeah! That's enough of that. Right. Um, yes. Yeah, so well done to uh, the promoters. Obviously, it's their first foray into snooker, um, and they seem delighted, quite rightly, with how it had gone. Um, you know, it's a lot of work putting a snooker tournament on. There's all sorts of things that, you know, ordinary fans don't think about wouldn't have to think about you know you get there you see the tables you see the matches you don't actually have to give any consideration to to what's gone into it but a lot of work months of work went into it um and the crowds built up nicely the weekend certainly it was full they were very uh, passionate um so many of them of course had watched it on tv for years would have been seeing it up close for the first time i know there were people there who went every day and i know judd was very popular there he um he was i think the first sort of top player to really support the event when it was announced um, and I know that he spent time you know, signing autographs, doing all that stuff as the other players would have done as well um, and that's all part of it. So I think snooker represented itself uh, really well and uh, yeah, people just seemed to enjoy it. It's a bit somewhere different, it seemed a very nice place um, and it's good that uh, it's a new territory, it's a five-year deal. Uh, it's a big tournament as well, 100,000 to the winner and of course gets Trump in the Tour Championship so, uh, yeah, a, a, a successful week all round. I also want to, uh, just on a personal note, congratulate my dear friend uh, Sam Fletcher from World Snooker Tour, who um, was pressed into doing the interviews at the end. Now, Sam is the digital media manager, so it's not his job to do that. He does all the 
stuff behind the scenes, really, you know, on their social media channels. But uh, the choice was made that he should do the interviews, and that is not an easy job. Uh, I've said this before when, when other people have done it, because you're right in the lion's den there, you know, it, 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 it's the sort of thing you only really remember for doing that if you mess it up. <laughs> because there's been times where some ridiculous questions have been asked before, and people have said strange things, and that's what it's been remembered for. But to go out there, you'd be nervous, I imagine. Um, he did really well. He asked proper questions. They were short questions. He got good answers, and uh, it was nice to see him. Uh, nice to see him doing well uh, at that. Um, and he wore an extraordinary handkerchief, which uh, I think probably by now has got his own Twitter account. Anyway, um, <laughs> we're not here to talk about handkerchiefs because we're here, to, of course, to uh, to discuss the the week gone by and other things as well, due to your correspondence. And uh, Jonathan Ford uh, writes in, he says, I was reflecting on the cover of the latest snooker scene and the diverse and varied nature of the season it reflects. It has to be the most unpredictable, refreshing and eclectic mix of winners of tournaments ever. Also, did anyone notice the peace talks on March the 10th between Ukraine and Russia took place in Antalya? The same week and location for the Turkish Masters. Who would have thought it? Well, indeed. I mean, th- thankfully, uh, Robert Milkins didn't uh, didn't gatecrash that one. But anyway, we'll uh, draw a line under that. Yes, it is a very unpredictable season, um, and uh, I think it, it, it's there's a number of things going on here. I think that, that, that and I've written a piece for the Eurosport website this week, which you can check out, which sort of crystallises my thoughts on this. But essentially, I think what is true is there's more strength in depth now than ever, and if the top players, for whatever reason, are slightly off their game the lower-ranked players now are capable of beating them. And they're capable not only of beating them, but as we've seen, going on to win tournaments. Um, the world number 50 now, you know, is a much better player than 30 years ago. Uh, you know, much better. And the fact is, you know, they, they can get the results. And I think a lot of the fear factor has gone. I do wonder if the pandemic and the behind-closed-door snooker was a bit of a leveller in terms of just the experience of being... A snooker player because I've seen I've been to tournaments I mean years ago I went to a tournament in China where two of the <laughs> of the very biggest names in the history of the sport would not stay at the official hotel because they said it wasn't good enough now the, t- the hotel was wonderful but but what they were really saying was we're legends of the game we're going to prove it by staying somewhere else it's kind of almost like you know just reminding everyone actually we're kind of better than you um, there was a, a player at the championship league this year and again very well known who wouldn't eat the food that was put on. He went and got his own food because, again, it's a way of setting yourself apart and saying, actually, I'm a, I'm a bit above all of this. Um, and to be honest, I kind of like that stuff because uh, because they are <laughs> they kind of are legends, these people. Um, but the point is this. Behind closed doors in Milton Keynes, you couldn't do that. Everyone was literally in the same boat. You queued up to get tested. You know, you had to follow... Everyone followed the same protocol. Being a multi-world champion didn't uh, exempt you from anything. You were on the same footing as a tall rookie. Everyone was in the same boat. And um, it kind of, yeah, that may maybe just sort of level the playing field almost psychologically in a way. Um, when there were no crowds, the, I think the thoughts were, we're going to have lots of shot winners because there's less pressure. We only had one, Jordan Brown. Since the crowds have come back, we've had a lot more. So it's kind of the reverse of what you might think. And I think the, the return of crowds has sort of almost served as a reminder of the pressure that's on these guys, the stakes, the high stakes that professional sport is played under. It's been one of those seasons and it's been really interesting and I do wonder what it means for the World Championship. Will it be a former winner, um, someone who we would expect to win? Would it be a player off that list of players who kind of we feel could win it? Or will it just be someone from completely left field? 
And uh, in fact, I think we have a question on that. Simon Thompson. You see, this is seamless. Simon Thompson. I don't know a massive amount about the sport. Well, join the club, Simon. Uh, but I've noticed that quite a, quite a few surprise winners of events this season. I wonder, might this be a portent of a further upset in the World Championships, namely a qualifier winning it? Time to get off the fence now, Dave. If you had to put 50p on an outsider, who would it be and why? By the way, I'm not seeking any inside info here, as I've already put my money on Ricky Walden at 101 to 1. Don't tell the missus. Keep on with the yabbering, and if he wins, I'll buy you a pint. Well, um, <laughs> so, I mean, we don't know specifically who will have to qualify, because obviously there's still, you know, Gibraltar to come or whatever, but uh, it's essentially kind of set now. I mean, Yambing Tao <laughs> is, is 16th, I think, on the crucible list, and hasn't entered Gibraltar, which strikes me as a remarkably risky strategy. I don't know why that is, but uh, there may be a good reason. Uh, but... Um, well, I'll name you. I'll give you a name from the qualifiers. Um, he's done well there in the past. Gary Wilson. Okay, Gary Wilson, semi-finalist three years ago. He's a tough character, Gary. Um, obviously, runner-up in the British Open. He always gives the impression of never quite being satisfied with his sort of whatever he does in a tournament, unless he wins it, which in some ways is a refreshing attitude. He's not he's not there to sort of make up the numbers and get to a quarter-final or a semi-final. He wants to win it. And Well, why not someone like that? Why not someone just getting on a run? Because what we've seen this season is... Reputation and sort of you know this logical analysis of who can beat who doesn't really come into it. It's who finds form any given week will win the tournament. In the case of the Crucible, it's nearly three weeks, and of course you add on the qualifier, and it's really a month. So if a qualifier is going to win it, they're going to have to play well for you know four or five weeks. But um, it could happen this season. It's got the sort of sense it might. There's only ever been two qualifiers have won at the Crucible. Terry Griffiths, 1979, Sean Murphy, 2005. We've had a few others reach the final. Uh, of course, Ding did when he, when he had to qualify in 2016. Um, so we'll see. But you've asked me for a name. I've given you a name. Uh, please gamble responsibly. Uh, Matthew Wood, do you think eventually the Turkish Masters will replace the Gibraltar Open for season-ending season ending European series? I do think it would be more fitting. What's happening with regards to the tournament in Saudi Arabia? Uh, on the latter point, I don't know. It's not been mentioned uh, for a while. The new calendar uh, is due out, I believe, at, at the World Championship. It will be announced. But I don't suspect, uh, personally, that the Saudi Arabian tournament will be on there, so I don't know what's happening with that. Uh, in terms of your original question, th do you think the Turkish Masters will place Gibraltar open for the European Series? No, I don't, uh, for the very simple reason that that European Series is sponsored by Bet Victor and it's all the tournaments that they sponsor. And they don't sponsor the Turkish Masters. They're sponsored by the Nirvana uh, hotel chain. It's actually an act of genius, uh, again, on Barry Hearn's part, um, having Gibraltar last in that because it's forced everyone to play in it. Ronnie O'Sullivan has entered it for the first time. Why? Because he's in the the running for the £150,000 first prize. Same as all the other people that go in there. They don't need to go there, but it's a, it's a way of um, sort of, you know, p persuading them to play. And it's a great uh, move, a very uh, smart move, as usual, by Barry. Um, so yeah, that's why it is where it is in the calendar, and that's why it's the last leg of that particular uh, series. I think there's eleven players that can still actually win that that prize. Sam Kelly writes, "I was watching the Turkish Masters today when Sean Murphy miscued, and when he returned to the table, flattened the cloth to make sure he hadn't damaged it. You mentioned on commentary that someone, Peter Ebden, you thought had one, had indeed once ripped the cloth when playing, and what must have been a remarkable miscue." I've never seen anyone tear the cloth other than in a comedy sketch, but of course anything that can happen probably has done at some time, and that got me wondering what the rules say about 
how to proceed if damage occurs during a frame. Do they play on regardless, abandon the frame, transfer to a different table if possible, postpone the match but carry over the points score for the frame, or what? Having consulted my 1978 copy of the rules and also 2022 Google, it would seem that the answer is the rules say nothing. Do you remember how things were dealt with after the Ebden incident? Uh, well, it was at the Crucible. It was Peter Ebden. He did tear the cloth. It wasn't sort of a massive, like it would be in a comedy sketch, a massive tear, but it was torn. My memory is they just had to carry on until, I guess, the interval or the end of session when the table fitters did their best to sort of do running repairs. I guess eventually they had to replace the cloth. Um, but uh, there was a tear in it. It wasn't a massive, like I say, it wasn't a massive tear, but they would have done whatever they have to do, literally sewn it up, whatever it was, to at least... Uh, repair it for for the moment but uh, yeah I mean it would have to be you know a seriously damaged table to, to, to go on to a, a, another table um, Sam continues by the way my rules booklet also contains records of championships in years gone by they had proper matches back in the day in 1952 the world champion was Horace Lindrum who beat Clark McConaughey by 94 frames to 49 in the final that's right it looks like they played the best of a 187 Questions arise. How long did the match take? And how motivated can Mr McConaughey have been as they broke off in the final frame, needing, as he did, to win every single one of the remaining 45? Always enjoy your podcast. Please keep up the good work. And with a belated happy birthday to Fergal O'Brien. Um, <clears throat> it took several weeks, but the, the thing is, um, they played a lot of dead frames as well. So in the olden days of the World Championship, it would be, say it was a three-week final. They would just play every frame. So if it was best of 149, they would play all the frames. Um, so it's not that they were playing... It wasn't first to 94. They were just playing that set number of frames. 100 and... What is it? 45, 155, whatever it is. Um, frames. Uh, 50, 153 frames. Whatever it is, they played them all. So, I mean, that's pretty dispiriting for, for spectators, really, because you're watching... You know, you, the final's over. <laughs> it might be over with a week to go. But they've sold tickets... Nobody knew any better, I guess, and they just played played them out. And yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, it seems ridiculous, really, that it took that long. But of course, the reason was there weren't many professionals, and you know, th therefore they couldn't have a three week tournament. It was a three week final. In the case in nineteen fifty two, specifically, uh, Horace Lindham, Clark McConaughey, that was the only match because there was uh, strife. Uh, there was a boycott by all the other players. They played their own championship, which I think Fred Davis won. Um, which was the real world championship. Um, but Horace Lindrum won the trophy that he still play for today. His name's on it because he contested under the established governing body. He contested the world final, but there were just two people in it. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of snooky historians don't regard his win as the proper win that year. Um, he's, the Lindrum family are very vocal on this, though, and they do very much regard it as, 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 as authentic. And, you know, I'm not going to get involved in that argument because... It was 70 years ago, but um, anyway, that's, that's sort of a bit of context there, I suppose. Stuart May, I've been thinking about the ranking system for the World Snooker Tour and how it should reflect where the player stands in relation to his performance. It would seem sensible to give more weight to recent performances, with past performances gradually being less relevant as the time goes on. The current system keeps the prize money earned over the last two years and, when updated, deducts 100% of the prize money earned before this time all in one go. An example of this is the current standing of Steve Maguire at 16th on 251,500, which includes 150,000 earned for the 2020 Tour Championship win. He will be down to 39th in the rankings when his points are deducted. 
Another example is Ronnie O'Sullivan standing second on 996,000, which includes 500,000 for his 2020 World Championship win. It doesn't seem sensible to me to have a cliff-faced drop-off of Maguire's Tour Championship points, as he hasn't realistically suddenly gone from a top 16 player to out of the top 32 performance-wise. I would suggest a gradual decay of ranking points earned from a year ago to two years ago would make the ranking list more representative of where each player stands performance-wise in the list. For example, at each ranking cut-off point, 10% of the points earned up to that point a year ago could be deducted as each, each past performance becomes less relevant. However, it would be formulated, however it would be formulated, the final reminder, I'll start that again, however it would be formulated, the final remainder could be deducted as normal at the two-year cut-off point. I can see how this might get a bit complicated, however, if such a system were to be used, it would make a ranking list more relevant in my opinion. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. Well, thank you, Stuart. Um, yes, I mean, well, uh, part of the issue here is is just the way the, the ranking list is structured in terms of the, it's a money list. Therefore, we are talking, as you say, hundreds of thousands of points at a time. If you win a tournament, 150,000 coming off Maguire, uh, he will drop like a stone because he hasn't been putting those points on. And that's one of the reasons you see people like Michael Holt and Tepchara Nu, uh, you know, involved in tour survival. They've won tournaments, the points have come off, they haven't put them back on and they've dropped like a stone. I think your argument seems very logical. Um, there is logic to it. What you say about Maguire, you know, he hasn't got overnight from being the 16th best player in the world to the 39th, you know, just overnight, obviously. Um, so I think there is logic in it. I think it's a, I think it's a, a sort of well-thought-out idea. But you say yourself, um, I can see, you actually, your line is, I can see how this might get a bit complicated, which is an argument not to do it, because the thing is, it's like anything that seems like a good idea. If you start changing things, there can always be unforeseen things that can go wrong, maybe, or complicate things. Um, and to be honest, I haven't given this enough thought to think what they may be. But I kind of like the idea that it's more gradual rather than the sort of brutal way it's done at the moment. Um, because, yeah, it, to, it is, I think, a smart thing to say that you, you can't, on, on, on Sunday night, be the 16th best player in the world. And on Monday morning, suddenly be the 39th. <laughs> you know, that just doesn't really, in the cold light of day, make any sense. But that's the system. Um, the other side of it is, of course, you can go massively up, which is a good thing, I think. Like, Jiang Tong won the UK Championship, which is the second oldest ranking event. So he does deserve a massive boost from that. And, of course, he went rocketing into the top 16 because of it. Um, so it kind of works both ways, but it, 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 yeah, it's an interesting idea. Uh, what I would say is um, there's almost no chance of it being adopted because the World Snooker are very set on their ranking list, their ranking structure, and they don't seem at all minded to change it. But uh, it's an interesting thought, I think. Max writes now. Last week he he wrote in uh, suggesting that the sort of World Championship should be like the Eurovision Song Contest and should travel around uh, the world in that way, and I I sort of disagreed. He says, many thanks for your erudite, articulate and indeed damning response to my brilliant idea regarding potential venues for the World Championship. As a result, I've had to placate my influential and rich mates across the world who are queuing up to host the event for next and out, should the winner turn out to be one of their compatriots. It's fine, though, to pacify them. I've agreed to send them all an exclusive gift package, including a packet of Woodbines, other cigarette brands are available, a gallon of maggots, other booze brands are available, a good pinch of snuff, and the promise of a night out in Sheffield, featuring a visit to one of the city's top restaurants for a dish of chipped and fried potatoes served in between two slices of white buttered bread. You see, people say podcasts go on too long, but here we are, we've got, we got the stuff here. Anyway, he says, 
I have something else to discuss, if I may. How about a tournament where all the best players play killer, with the additional fun of ex-players joining in along with perhaps one high-ranking amateur and a hot prospect junior? If any of your listeners are unfamiliar with the format, each player starts with a set number of lives, usually three. The person who has to break off is allowed two shots, one to scatter the pack, the other to have a dabble at potting a red. The reds get potted consecutively, then the colours in the normal order. Each player has one shot in sequence, decided beforehand by any criteria, age, ranking, surname, whatever, and loses a life if they either fail to pop the ball on or commit any kind of foul. After a foul, the next player up has ball in hand to be plonked anywhere on the table. Once all the balls are down, the process starts again. A shot clock can easily be introduced if necessary. There are many and varied benefits to this. Fans get to see several players at once in a convivial atmosphere. Shots which wouldn't normally be attempted come into play and players are forced to make unusual tactical decisions regarding the final resting place of the cue ball. Ultimately, only one player remains, and he wins the prize, much to the delight of the adoring crowd. The number of games would depend on the number of entrants, as each match would have to be limited to, say, ten players, so the ref and scoreboard could cope. What do you reckon to that, sir? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I've played this. I've played this, uh, as I'm sure most snooker people have. I, I, I think I played it with Mark Williams at one point. Anyway, um... It's good fun, you're right, and it, it gives everyone a chance. Um, it's more of a level playing field. Whether there's any audience uh, interest in this, I'd be I'd be surprised, frankly. I think most people just want to watch uh, snooker. Um, we get a lot of emails from people suggesting sort of a, 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 sort of events and and sort of competitions away from actually just playing snooker, which is kind of what most of us actually like. Um, but it's good fun, and uh, if there was if if of a big name sponsor wants to step in and put a tournament on, I certainly have no objection. Liam Borstal writes, "Great show podcast. We listen every ep." My name is Liam Borstal from Cheshire. I'm a rare, openly gay Q sports fanatic and player of a high level. I play UK pool at county level, a high snooker break of sixty nine. I'm also very good at nine ball, China Chinese eight ball, and have been known to dabble a bit at billiards. Now, the reason he's written in, a Pandora's box was opened a few weeks ago. Someone wrote in basically to say which snooker players they fancied. And this is, this is now uh, a response to that. Uh, so he, Liam has written his top five snooker crashy, crushes, not crashes, crushes in order. And we're going to count down from five to one, see if he can predict who they're going to be. He's given scores out of ten. doesn't uh, explain... You know how the scores have been worked out, but I think we'll we'll leave that to, to one side. We don't need to know all the details. But these, this is the top five, Liam's top five snooker crushes in reverse order. Number five, Neil Robertson, who's been awarded seven point seven five out of ten. Now, the, 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 that suggests that it's been there are there is criteria here. Seven point seven five is very specific, but Neil has made the top five. Number four, James Cahill, eight out of ten. Number three, Ronnie O'Sullivan, eight and a half out of ten. Number two, we've got uh, joint uh, placings. Judd Trump and Mark Selby, 9 out of 10. And number one in this list of snooker crushes, and uh, let's see if anyone could predict this, number one is Sean Murphy. Yes, it is. Sean Murphy, who's been awarded 9.5 out of 10 for for reasons uh, that we do not know about. Uh, He adds, I also think referee Marcel Eckhart, 9 out of 10, is a dish. (laughs) And whilst we're covering all areas of snooker, among the pundits, presenters and commentators, I have a real thing for Rob Walker, 9 out of 10. I hope you don't mind my indulgence. Keep up the great podcast. Well, thank you. Um, I think we may draw a line under this subject now, but uh, yes, thank you. I noticed I wasn't mentioned there, but that's fine. That's absolutely fine. Um, James Cook in Colorado, uh, our American correspondent, or our correspondent in America, 
Watching the latest snooker and seeing Yan Bingtao, Xia Jingtong and other Chinese players made me wonder about names and why the Chinese players haven't adopted Western forenames. Obviously they don't have to, but when I lived and worked in China, all of my Chinese colleagues chose Western names to make it a bit, bit easier for us expats to pronounce. There are quite a few Kevins, some Tonys and also some more creative names. Nuclear Chen, Cactus Xiao were two of my favourites. There's a precedent for this, James Watanar, Marco Fu. So wondering why the new generation doesn't. Maybe because the game is so global and so big in China, they don't have to bow to Western norms, which is a good thing. Thoughts? Well, before we move on, I'll, yeah, because there's another subject, I'll, yeah, I'll answer that. Yeah, I guess that is it. I think, you know, it was more of a novelty maybe years ago. James Watanar, um, I mean, his name is not James, but he used that, um, you know, just to sort of, I suppose, fit in, if you want to put it that way. Um, yeah, uh, but I guess... Now that the, the number, the volume of Chinese players coming over, they don't feel the need to do that, and I, I don't think they should. I think they should, they should just use their names. Whether we're pronouncing them correctly is another matter, I guess. James said, also listen to the latest podcast about memorable colours. Here are some thoughts. Now, of course, this was about, uh, someone wrote in about uh, what's the most memorable shot on each colour. So we've got here from James, red, Cliff's Thorburn's flute red to start the maximum in 1983, or Jimmy White's mist red with the rest in the 1982 semi-final. Surely if he'd potted that, he'd have been world champion. Uh, I mean, Ray Reardon's listened to this saying, hang on. And by the way, we'll come on to Ray Reardon in a minute because I've got things to say about the uh, the recent programme about him. Uh, yellow, uh, James says, I agree with Cliffs in the maximum break in 83. Green, Alex Higgins in that break in 1982, potting it and flicking the red off the cushion. Brown, Jimmy White Massey shot to hit the brown the 1993 European League. Yeah, that's on YouTube. It's, uh, it's a ridiculous shot, really. Uh, just extraordinary. Uh, blue, Alex Higgins in the 82 semi-final 69 break. Blue with check side to come back for the red. Pink, the pink Ronnie took versus Barry Pinches on the second last red on a maximum to get a 146 in protest at the low 147 prize. Uh, I said low, it was 10,000. It's not that bad. Uh, anyway, black, so many here. Ronnie's in World Open when he didn't want to pot it. Of course, Yamba has that to uh, the referee had to sort of basically tell him to. Uh, Ken's missed black for the max. Jimmy's missed one in the 994 World Championship decider. Cliff's good luck, mate, for the 147. As ever, keep the awesome, keep up the awesome work. Thank you. Uh, well, we're just the Ray Reardon thing. Now, there's an excellent documentary on, on Ray Reardon, um, who's now 89, uh, on BBC Wales. And if you live in the UK, it'll be on the BBC iPlayer uh, on catch-up. Um, he was in great form. He, he, he's, he's got a real sort of irrepressible nature about him. Um, a little bit like what I was saying about those players earlier who wouldn't stay in the in the hotel, same as hotel as everyone else. He he sort of acts like, even now, even to this day, he acts like a cut above. And I think in sport, maybe you have to do that. Um, anyway, but one thing that was that was on the the, the program, uh, he he says that the eighty two final that he lost to Higgins, he said that they went to the interval fifteen all, and Alex came out a different man. He said that he there was a drugs test that was lost, the results were lost, and no one knows what happened to them. Essentially what he's saying is that Higgins took something. It's cut to the chase. But the, the facts actually don't stack up, because the interval wasn't taken at 15 all. It was 15-14 when they took the interval, and Reardon won the first frame after that. Um, so that <laughs> what, what he said doesn't make any logical sense. And also, there wasn't any drug testing either. <laughs> That's the other thing. So... There can't have been a result. So, and I'm amazed that the BBC, no one is more obsessed with balance than the BBC um, to a, an almost ludicrous extent in some of their sort of news coverage. 
But no one seemed to think that the other side of this should be put or that even the facts should be checked. It was just literally almost a statement of fact. Maybe you think you can't libel someone who's not alive anymore, which, of course, Alex Higgins isn't. Um, but I was astounded that that, was, that just went through without any comment. Nobody put in the other side, nobody questioning it. Um, I'm not naive enough to think Alex Higgins you know, never, was never sort of on anything because I suspect he tried most things in his, in, his, in his life. But I thought that was a bit out of order. I suppose when you're 89, you can say what you like. Um, but, you know, give Higgins his due. He, he was the better player, ultimately. And he, 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 you know, he played terrific snooker in that championship, as it's already been mentioned about the, the clearance against Jimmy White. And he finished the final off really well. So I was, I was surprised by that. But, you know, Reardon has got this, like I say, irrepressible. He's got this glint in his eyes still. And he's a great character. It's a lovely documentary. Ronnie O'Sullivan makes an appearance on it. Says some nice things, uh, not only about Ray, but to, literally to Ray. Um, so, yeah, w- well, worth, uh, well worth checking it out. Uh, we'll end this. It's a shorter episode because, you know, 21 days commentary. I've got other things to do, frankly. But um, anyway, Kerry Richards, um, following on from my email last year around the colour of the snooker balls, is there any obvious reason why the base is green? I wonder whether as a quirk, if World Snooker Tour might one day play a tournament on a different colour base. All I would say to that, Kerry, is don't give them any ideas. <laughs> OK, we, again, it seems... Why? Why? Why change the colour? You know, it's all, it's always been green. Um, I don't know the specific uh, the specifics of that. No, but um, I mean, it goes back to billiards. It's the billiard tables. They've always been played on a green base. Um, the specific reason, I couldn't tell you. But um, let let's just leave it as it is. <laughs> There's enough going on in the world without changing the colour of the snooker table. I think. Um, so it's a shorter edition this week. But there we are. Um, uh, yes, well, there we are. But we now exciting. There'll be exciting. Um, I say exciting. There'll be there'll be uh, developments coming up shortly in the next few weeks. We've got a guest coming on, um, talking about something rather interesting, and hopefully, um, well, something a bit different. Yeah, rather than me just talking to myself. Uh, so anyway, we're proud members. <laughs> we're proud members of the Sports Social Network. Check out their other podcasts uh, if you want to. Um, you can email us at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. So we've got three tournaments left now this season. Gibraltar Open, which, for the reasons explained with the European Series, is a big event now. Um, but the prize money breakdown there, I mean, it's pretty ridiculous, actually. It's six grand. I mean, it's sort of death by a thousand cuts to get to the semis. Six grand in the semis, runner-up 20, winner 50. So to really impact either getting in the Tour Championship or getting in the top 16, you've either got to win it or get to the final. So I would say that those eight in the Tour Championship now, probably the top seven are probably all right. I think Higgins, John Higgins is eighth, so he's the one, but he's in Gibraltar. Um, so I wouldn't be at all surprised if those eight weren't the Tour Championship field. And if they are, that's fantastic because it's a great lineup. Um, and then the next event, of course, is the Tour Championship in Clandidno. We'll be going back there uh, two years after it all shut down. Um, always a great week that and then of course the day after it's the World Championship qualifying and then the World Championship starts at the Crucible on April the 16th to May the 2nd all good stuff great time of the year the weather's starting to get a bit nicer Um, if you sort of forget about the World War then (laughs) all is good isn't it all is good Thank goodness for snooker. I, I always say in these times, you know, we had this in the pandemic. At least it's uh, it doesn't solve anything, but it's a distraction of sorts. And we congratulate Judd Trump again on his victory. Um, and we say thanks for listening. We is I say thanks for listening. And as ever, as we always say, as I always say, 
in uh, an increasingly shambolic end to the podcast. Goodbye, bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.